When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name's Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Lint Podcast. Samsung has followed up its Samsung Galaxy S launch in February with the Samsung Galaxy A33 and A55 launches this week. The new mid-range phones offers plenty of those on a budget and come at a time when mid-range market is as competitive as ever. So can Samsung compete against the likes of Apple, Xiaomi and Oppo and others? Pocket Lint's editor Chris Hall joins me from the launch event to tell us more. Meanwhile, I caught up with an author who's been writing about the metaverse for over a decade, and he's here to discuss why now and what it means for the likes of you and me. And then Pocket Lens Cam Bunton joins me to, well, grill me on how I've been getting on with the new Mac Studio computer. The company's most powerful Mac to date promises to be the computer to get creatives keen to get their work done faster, but can it live up to the promise? Stay tuned to find out. So, Chris, you've just come out of the Samsung event. Tell us what it's all about. Uh, well, it's an interesting update because Samsung has updated the Galaxy A series. And the Galaxy A series is one of Samsung's most popular devices. We're mm. talking about the Galaxy Z and we're talking about the, the Galaxy S all the time. But this is where they actually sell most of their phones. So the two upgrades here are the A53 and the A33. And they're sort of slightly like incremental updates from what we've seen over the past couple of years. And it's really the A33 that is the more interesting device because this has taken quite a big step forward. And that means it's slightly more expensive in price, but you get a lot more for it. For example, there's a new design around the back of the phone. uh, So it looks like the next step up. There's also a new display on this uh, on this device as well, which means you're getting a much higher quality, you know, higher resolution. So it's going to be a much better experience overall. As well as that, they've also packed in some brand new hardware, which they're promising great advancements through. And that should mean that if you're looking at buying one of these phones, you get a much better day-to-day experience than you did on the older devices. Now, this is effectively the mid-range play, as you've said, which has become an incredibly competitive market. Do we think that from what you've seen so far at the launch that Samsung has got what it takes with these devices to match up against the Oppos and the Xiaomi's of this world? Yeah, I think they do, actually, because one of the things that underpins these devices is all of that experience that Samsung has got over the past, whatever it is, 15 years of running these sorts of devices, even even more years, perhaps. Um, They come with the latest version of Android, Android 12. They're promising four years of OS updates, five years of security updates, which I think is leading for Mm. the Android pack at the moment. And it comes with Samsung's One UI as well, which is, you know, the same as you get on the Galaxy S. So there is a lot of the Galaxy S experience that you get in this. And a lot of those premium features that they tout on those flagship phones you get here as well. And having used one of these Galaxy A devices last year, I found that the difference between this mid-range and the flagship level is actually kind of minor. There are some small spaces like, you know, the camera performance isn't quite as good, especially in, in things like Zoom. And there isn't as much power for things like gaming. But when you're going through your Facebook or putting photos of yourself in amazing locations on Instagram, 
none of that makes any difference at all. And it's a device that costs about half the price. So against the competition, I think, yeah, these are really strong phones for Samsung. And do you think that's, is that going to be, is that going to cause a problem for Samsung? If, if, you know, they've constantly been saying, go out and buy the Galaxy S range. And, and here you are saying that, you know, there's a phone that is okay. We admit that it's not as powerful, but is, is somewhat, you know, treading on those toke those tailcoats do you think that's that's going to hurt samsung in the long run or do you think that's going to be good for for the company i think actually samsung already knows that because they talk about how important this is and this launch comes just off the back of the galaxy s and i would imagine that some people aren't even aware of the galaxy s22 yet and some retailers probably don't even have it in stock yet and suddenly this new version is coming along and i think that's an indicator of how important this is for samsung they launched the Galaxy S. They, they tried to draw your attention and say, look how amazing this is. Oh, by the way, here's a phone that's almost the same, but it's much cheaper. And I would imagine that it probably outsells Galaxy S by a factor of 10 or something. I've got no proof of that. That's just the feeling and things that people have said to me in the past. Retailers have said to me in the past that Galaxy S is the real volume seller. So, so yeah, I think Samsung is, is fully aware and not worried that it's going to undercut that flagship experience. Now, this is the second phone in as many weeks that we've seen that are appealing to that mid-market. I'm obviously talking about the uh, Apple iPhone SE. That had 5G. This has 5G. Does that mean that 5G is now very much here, but also available to everybody? Yeah, and, and that's also the message that we get, not from, just from the manufacturers, but from the people who are providing the hardware behind this, like Qualcomm. Um, for over the past year, year and a half, they've been moving the focus to providing all of those those chipsets that power these devices to make sure that they're much more affordable. So although there are different grades of 5G and some people will boast that their 5G is better than other people's 5G Hmm. around the globe, it's now getting to a point where 5G is sort of universally available to a lot of people. That said, there will still be some devices that are 4G only that come in as even more affordable. But once you get down to those more, more affordable devices going much lower than this you'll find that some of the experience is also slightly tempered as well and not quite up to the level that you get here now i have two final questions for you one is that there was lots of rumors talking about an a73 Um, obviously i know you just talked about the a33 and a53 did that show its face as well uh no it didn't um and that's a bit of a surprise for many people although if you follow the leaks um one of the internet's most notorious leakers said no there's going to be no a73 this time around it may be that it's delayed it's likely that it's delayed because last year the a72 offered an optical zoom lens and that's the thing that's missing from these devices so there is a little bit of space slightly higher up the spectrum for people who want slightly more out of the camera i wouldn't be surprised if the galaxy a73 arrives in in the next couple of months and finally these are you talked about them being mid-priced and stuff do we have pricing availability anything of that nature uh, yeah, you can expect to pay about £300, uh, £350 around that kind of mark for these phones. The, a, the A33 is obviously cheaper, um, and so that comes in about £320, I think. And the, uh, the, the A53, I think, is £399. And it's available soon, I presume? Uh, I believe the pre-orders are opening probably next week and they're available around the end of the month, although the availability in different regions is, is going to vary. Still to come, I give my verdict on the Mac Studio. That's tough. I think it's it, this is overkill, 100%, for most people. But if you work with big files day in, day out, 
then this is definitely something you should be looking at. Seemingly appearing out of nowhere, companies are keen to jump on the bandwagon of the metaverse. Whether it's offering you a chance to live a second life in a virtual realm or merely having a drink with friends and work colleagues, everyone from Facebook to Heineken are keen to be involved. But the metaverse isn't a new concept, something that author Jeff Norton knows all too well. His MetaWar books are set in an unforgiving future with two warring factions, the Millennials and the Guardians, who are locked in a brutal battle of control of an online world called the Metasphere. Oh, and he wrote them over a decade ago. Given how the metaverse continues to dominate the headlines recently, I thought it'd be interesting to discuss the cultural impact of the metaverse and the implications it could have on society from someone that grasped the concept before most of us had even heard of the term. I started by asking Jeff about what his definition of the metaverse actually is. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting and exciting about this concept of the metaverse is that there's lots of different definitions because the future is very much still being written. I think for me, it's about two things. It's about the progression of the internet that is more experiential than it is now and that is more immersive. So those are the kind of two vectors that I that I like to explore, experiential and immersive. Now, as I said at the beginning, you you wrote a book about set inside the metaverse, uh, fight for the future, uh, 12, 10 years ago in 2012. Um, the metaverse is now obviously being banded around by the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and, and others as this brand new exciting thing. Do you, <laughs> someone has written about it for a while, do you, do you feel that this is what you've been waiting for or has your idea been hijacked by big tech? <laughs> it's a great question. You know, it's funny. I, I wrote the book actually in 2010 and because the publishing process is a, is a long process, the first book, Meta Wars Fight for the Future came out in, in August of 2012. And what I was doing is probably a, the same thing that a lot of tech leaders were doing, which is I was looking at consumer behavior. I was looking at what users were doing, how people are interacting with one another. And I tried to extrapolate in science fiction terms anyway, I tried to imagine and extrapolate where the world might be going. And I, I in the book, I called it Web 4.0. And I know we're still talking about a migration mm. from, from Web 2 to Web 3.0. But I imagined that because people were interfacing with one another more and more digitally, and of course, this is well before the pandemic. And, and the jumping off point for me was I was in Portugal during the ash cloud when that Icelandic ash cloud grounded all the flights. Right. And so my real world life, all of a sudden overnight, became fully digital. And that was the sort of eureka or aha moment that inspired the, the story world. But of course, you know, a book is really about characters. So what I did is created the characters that would inhabit this possible near future. And that was really the genesis of, uh, of, of the first book anyway. And, you know, you're talking to, you talk to authors, and they kind of said, you know, where where did you get the idea from? Obviously, you were moving to digital. Did that give you a much greater sense of freedom to be able to write? Because in theory, there are no rules in the metaverse compared to perhaps rules that you're restricted to in, in the real world. Well, it's funny because in a way, I think it's almost harder because I think to create a story world that's believable, where people will willfully suspend their disbelief, you actually have to invent and create a set of rules, and then you violate them at your peril. And I think particularly for whether it's fantasy or science fiction or, or anything that exists outside of our current reality, I think the job of the author is to create those story universe rules 
And I think we've all either watched something or read something where the creator has violated them. And it's the source of fury. Right? It's like, well, wait a second, that can't happen or that's an easy out. So one of the things I had to do in, in basically creating what I call the metasphere in, in the books is decide what the rules of the metasphere were going to be. And in fact, I, I wrote a lot of them down because I wanted to make sure that the readers, if they're going along for the ride with me, I mean, it's a pretty big commitment to read a book. Um, and, and, and there was four books in this series in the end that I wanted to make sure that nobody felt shortchanged, that, that, that I wasn't following my own, my own rules of the road. And the metaverse is kind of, you know, I remember when I first started writing about tech, it, the metaverse was kind of in the form of second life. And, you know, that kind of, it didn't, it didn't end well in the end for second life. Do you think that through what you've studied and, and obviously researched and stuff for writing about the metaverse and things like that, do you think that we've now got the tools in place for people like Mark Zuckerberg to, to make a success of it second I, time around? It's a really good question. I think there's been a lot of false starts. And, and to be honest, Stuart, I think there's going to be, there will be more false starts to come. Um, but I think all of these initiatives or programs or worlds or whatever you want to call them, platforms, they're all a version of a dress rehearsal for what will come later. But I think for Second Life in particular, one of the big mismatches was there was a mismatch between the ambition and the hardware and the broadband. I think there was always a bit of a disconnect between how how I remember very clearly, I remember jumping into Second Life. This was, again, probably 2011, maybe mm. 2010, trying to attend, I think it was a concert. And, you know, my BT internet just couldn't keep up. Right. So, so it sort of failed at that first hurdle. And I think we're getting there. I think we're on the path to be able to, to have a better matching between computational power and broadband and what the vision will be. But I'm not altogether convinced we're there yet. Um, I think some of the initial attempts are, are very good, but I think we're probably, and I don't want to put a year count on it, but we're probably a few years away from being able to really match the vision of what really has been imagined in, effectively in science fiction versus the reality. And twas ever thus, right? I mean, I remember, you know, being a kid and watching Star Trek and being amazed at the, the communicator. Well, then flash forward 30 years later, and we had the Motorola Razor flip phone, which was basically sure. Amber Kirk's you know, mm. communicator. So I think, I think it will catch up, but I think there is a, a, a still a bumpy road ahead. And, and if you look at sort of another popular work of fiction, which a lot of people have, have encountered, um, and talking about Ready Player One, you know, that's an example of a world where everyone's just plugged in to this this device and they're kind of they're all addicted to the oasis and 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 that whatever you know the goodness and 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 negativity of that do you foresee that the metaverse will eventually go that way or have you got different sort of views on that you know i i think there is an element of that that that's both something to watch out for and something to potentially celebrate And, and what i mean by potentially celebrate is you know the real world is a tough place to be for a lot of people and you know we all find ways to escape. It could be binge watching a Netflix show. It could be playing a video game. Uh, in the case of Ready Player One, it's going into the Oasis. You know the the world that I cast in in the in my books in, in Meta Wars um, is is not dissimilar in the sense that people it's different in the sense that it's a bio connectivity. So it's brain computer interface. Um, so it's much more immersive. It's not a headset, but it's, it's still that concept of checking out of the real world because it's offering you very little and spending the bulk of your time in a digital environment. 
And I see that we're doing that now already. I mean, I see people whose online lives are much more interesting and much more compelling to them to their real lives. And in a way, I think there's some, some of that which is okay. On the flip side, I think some of that is very, very dangerous because one of the big moral questions it raises is, well, if we're more interested in our digital lives, what's the ramifications for planet Earth and, and this, this real world we inhabit? And if we become sort of emotionally checked out of the real world, you know, what are the consequences of that? I know you obviously you wrote four books uh, within the metaverse, so to speak, and then you've gone on to write other books about different subjects and, and, and the like. Um, do you think now that there's a stronger awareness, uh, a bigger awareness of the metaverse, that, that you'll return to that, that genre and that sort of subject? It's a really good question. I think, you know, one of the things that you do as an author, I'm a big believer in giving the audience and giving the reader undeniable endings. I'm a big believer in endings. I think, you know, stories progress towards an ending that should leave you better off than where you started. And so I'm really proud of where the four books got to. So I think I'm probably going to leave those characters and that story world alone. But you're absolutely right. You know, I think there is, particularly over the last six months, and, and specifically over the last three, probably with Facebook's rebranding, there's now a, a global awareness. And this word meta, which wasn't really in the, the popular parlance, um, is all of a sudden much more popular. So I'll never say never, but I think for this book series in particular, I think you know what I've put down on the page, I'm incredibly proud of. Um, but I think it is exciting to think about, are there other narratives and stories to be told. I think the other thing I'm interested in, and I haven't started this, but um, just on the back of your question, it's got me thinking is, you know, is there, is there a nonfiction book? You know, is there, is there something to explore that guides people into this next phase of internet connectivity and, and the internet? I think that could be something that I might, uh, might explore in due course. And have you found yourself moving into the metaverse? Have you, are you big into VR and are you kind of experiencing you know that already or have you kind of you like it from a fictional point of view i, w- I would say i'm uh, i'm a light touch participant and a very active observer um you know one of the things about about my life is my real world is actually incredibly full you know i've, I've got two kids um i make television shows for a living i write other books my um, if I had more hours in the day, I think I would be a more active participant in the world of the metaverse. But as it turns out, you know, my, my real life is incredibly chock-a-block full. So mm-hmm. it's one of those funny things that, you know, I, I fantasize sometimes that there's an eighth day in a week and I could just play video games all day. <laughs> life doesn't work that way. <laughs> and so just, I suppose the final question I have is that obviously you've, you've had the forefront foresight to, to write about the metaverse, you know, way before it was on in, in the daily lexicon of, of most of our lives do you do you, do you can you foretell anything else that we're going to be writing you know we're talking about in 10 years time that, that we haven't yet really kind of cottoned onto yet that's a great question you know I, I find when I what I do as an author and I suppose by definition a bit of a, a futurist I suppose is you know I try and pay attention to the trend lines um, and I think if I look at the trend lines today there's a rich, rich story universe to explore in a few vectors. But I think if I were to make some predictions, and by definition, predictions are always are always very difficult. You know, I think climate uh, is something to pay attention to. I think mm. what's generally called the culture wars, although I don't love that phrase, um, I think is something to pay very, very close attention to. Um, and so I think those are the two things that, you know, we should be 
we should be spending time on and, and frankly worrying about. I mean, obviously we're living through this pandemic, but I think this too shall pass. Um, but if I had to make two predictions of things that are going to change the face of the way we interact with one another, one would be climate and, and the second would be sort of tribal politics slash culture wars or whatever you want to call that. So normally at this part of the podcast, I get one of the Pocket team to come along and I grill them and talk to them about a product that they've been reviewing. However, this week, it's me that's been reviewing something. So rather than ask myself questions and you listen on Confused, I thought I'd get Cam Bunton from Pocket on to talk to me about the Mac Studio. He had a quick play with it earlier in the week as well and joins me now to, well, switch tables and give me the grilling. So are you ready for your grilling? Mannequin, <laughs> mannequin, what do I say? So uh, you've been using the Mac Studio for, what, the last week, I'm presuming? Yeah, about a week now. Uh, it's 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 good. It's it's powerful. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so what's it like to use? I mean, what have you been using it for? What's been impressing you the most about this new uh, Studio Mac from Apple? So I think it's, you know, for those who are suddenly not aware of this, Studio uh, Mac Studio, it's a new uh, category of Mac that sits slightly above the Mac Mini, uh, but below the Mac Pro. Uh, the iMac is kind of now, it's still there, but it doesn't really come into it because this is a device like the Mac Mini that doesn't come with a screen, doesn't come with a keyboard, doesn't come with trackpad, mouse, etc. The idea being is you buy this thing, you plug it into a monitor. They now sell a new display studio monitor as well. So that's just 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 how handy, isn't it, that they do that? Um, and and off you go. The thing to note about this device is that, and I mentioned it's powerful, and you laughed because I know you're going to talk to me about something in a minute, which we'll laugh even more about. Is that this is using a new Apple processor? Uh, it's taken the M1 processor that it's already been rolling out, and sort of like the easiest way to do it is doubled it. Uh, it's taken the M1 Max. It's worked out a way to connect the M1 Max to another M1 Max with something called Ultra Fusion, which sounds like a Marvel Cinematic Universe character, but it's it's just a bridge between two Macs. And the important thing here is it allows developers to treat this new double processor as a single processor, so they don't have to rewrite any code. That comes with a lot of processing power. It's 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 something like 60, 20 cores of CPU, 64 cores of GPU, another 32 of neural engine. That's like the top whack if you press all the buttons, you know, tick all the boxes. But it also comes with, the My Machine came with 128 gigabytes of RAM. Which is, quite frankly, astonishing. I mean, all the numbers, when you look at them like that, they, they just seem incredible, like 20 cores and a CPU, 128 gigabytes of RAM. So what does that actually mean in terms of real everyday performance? And what does that mean this can do that maybe your MacBook Pro can't do or my Mac Mini? What can it do better? Yeah, I mean, and it's worth pointing out at this point, just if you think 128 gig, that sounds crazy. That's what they call unified memory. Now, this is something Apple has started embracing with Apple Silicon, is that that memory can then be used not only for processing stuff on the on the, the computer itself, but also for graphics and things like that. So it's not... You know, these graphics cards that, that top out at 32 gig, this just says, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. We'll use all of the memory to do whatever we want whenever we need to. Don't worry about it. Now, just to give you an idea, one of the apps that um, I've been using with it was Final Cut Pro. Now, Apple sent me a file just because obviously it wanted to show off what it was capable of doing. This file had about 15 8K streams within it. It was a 34-second clip. 
and I know not everybody uses Final Cut Pro. It's because it's quite a senior, you know, it's quite a, a serious application. I know you use it, but it, the export file, and this is the important thing, the export file was 16 gig. Which okay? is huge. Which is huge, right? For 34 seconds. I mean, that's just bonkers, okay? Final Cut Pro on the M1 Ultra that I was testing it with, which had the which was the all the tick boxes, so it wasn't like a default level thing. All the tick boxes, 128 gig of RAM, which you, again you have to upgrade further from the base levels to. 24 seconds. I remember being surprised by this myself, actually, because I I had a play with that as well. And the thing when you're actually in Final Cut Pro and you're scrubbing and skimming through all that footage, and it's got all these streams of 8K, and it's just doing it so seamlessly, it seems ridiculous but i'm i'm presuming there's a catch here and that it's it's not cheap if you want that top tier level of performance oh yeah i mean this is where you kind of start this as i say this is a tick box exercise you know you're, you're ticking all the boxes i mean the thing comes up with it comes with eight terabytes of storage if you really want to go that that far and if you tick all the boxes you're kind of into the seven eight thousand pound marker you know with all the storage as well Base levels are about you probably get it for about five grand. I think the one I the one I had, um, which is punchy, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, if you're doing this day in day out, then it kind of makes sense. Now, to give you twenty four seconds probably doesn't mean anything to anybody, right? But to give it into context, I tried to do the same export on Final Cut Pro on my fourteen inch MacBook uh, Pro, which has got an M one Pro processor and thirty two gigs of of memory, right? So still an incredibly powerful machine. After numerous kind of, you're running out of memory, just press all the buttons, like just help, help, like distress calls and all the other stuff, 24 minutes. Which, yeah. I right. mean, that now, if, kind of puts it into perspective, doesn't and it? That, and, and, you know, that whole like time is money, Gordon Gecko kind of thing is, you know, that just shows you that this is, that's that's the 24 seconds or 24 minutes. And to some people... Spending an extra in that in that case, the MacBook Pro versus the Mac Studio, you're probably going to spend about another three thousand pounds to get that performance. You might think, "Wow, I could I could pretty much get I could get that back quite quickly," <laughs> depending yeah. on you know the, the the workflows and all the other stuff. So from that perspective, amazingly powerful. You know, I used uh, Photoshop. You know, you do sky replacement, which is a pretty labor intensive task on any photo. You know, normally you get a spinning wheel or whatever. Like I could just click through. Oh, yeah, I fancy that sky. No, I fancy that sky. And it was it was instantaneous, like as if it was just sitting there going. And this was on a raw file, you know, rather than sitting there going, oh, this is just like a JPEG. You're kind of like just, you know, putting some Instagram sort of smoochies on it or something. You know, it was just it was crazy. Um, just how capable a machine it was. The other thing I really liked about it, and this is a bit a bit strange, is that it's actually quite what I would call baggable. So yeah. because it's only about twice the size, twice the thickness of a Mac Mini, you know, if you're someone that's, that's you could easily you could easily put this in your bag and take it home to carry on working if you were in the office and, and vice versa, rather than sort of you know burning the midnight oil at midnight still in the office. You know, it's not like the Mac Pro, which you kind of need. I mean, that comes with optional wheels. You know, yeah. this, this is the thing you just you pick need up. A trolley for it. Yeah, exactly. This you could easily pick one of these things up, put it in a backpack, jump on the tube, and off you go. Um, obviously, you just hope the tube you don't get your bag nicked. But you know, it's that it, it's it's very portable device, uh, and I think that would appeal. And then the third thing I like about it is, remember that time where we had 
what Apple perceived with, under Johnny Ive was like the portless Apple Mac, oh, right? Yeah. Where you'd get like minimal as possible and no useful ports anywhere. But, you'd get like yeah. one port, like yeah. to to power it, to plug in all your accessories, to do all the other stuff. This this thing has two. Like the Ultra has two Thunderbolt 4s and an SD card on the front. Love it. So you can just plug in your card and off you go. On the back, it's got like another four USB, uh, USB C Thunderbolt 4 drives, uh, sockets. It's got Ethernet. It's got HDMI. It's even got Apple have even gone, you know what? We're just going to put a couple of traditional USB ports on there as well, just to shut you up. And then there's HDMI so you can run a 4K screen off it because this thing can run four. 5k monitors from the box plus a hdmi 4k output so you you know i mean i think your neck would hurt you'd get a tan from all the from all the screens that's incredible really isn't it i mean by the sounds of it it just sounds like a ridiculous machine is that is there anything that you don't like about it i mean presuming the price is one yeah not really i mean They have built, I mean, there is a sense that the thing that is slightly frustrating because they built it in this compact package and the way that it works, you know, the way that it is, you have to make sure that you pick the configuration you want from the get go and you can't upgrade it thereafter. So you can't just say, oh, I need, I, I, damn it, I made a mistake and I didn't get enough memory or I needed a bigger hard drive in there and, you know, I'll just swap that out and put that in. That's not going to happen. Um, and so that's a bit frustrating for those people that would perhaps want it. You know, the good thing is, is this kind of replaces the 27-inch Mac and the, and the Mac, iMac, uh, iMac Pro. And so that kind of, you know, you, at least now you can go off and buy your own screen and, and upgrade that over time. Or, or as Apple, when I questioned Apple about the, the ability to, you know, it wasn't upgradable. They were like, well, in a couple of years' time, you just buy that and you wouldn't have to buy the new screen. I'm like, okay, great, thanks. <laughs> Classic Apple. Yeah. So does this mean then that we're looking towards a future or something in the near future that is more akin to the Mac Pro, also powered by an M-series processor that is modular and changeable and upgradable? Yeah, we, I mean, we talked about this last week the, when, in the podcast when we were covering the, the event itself, the peak performance event where this device was announced. I think the interesting thing there is that they kind of alluded to that there was a Mac Pro coming. This is clearly the most powerful Mac that's available at the moment, but I think they want to make sure that developers and, and probably more like sort of movie professionals are kind of acknowledging that there is an even bigger, more powerful thing coming. And that could also be the argument for you holding off. If you're in that, if you're that customer and you're in that approach of holding off on buying one of these just to see, I suspect in June, we'll see the Mac Pro of just how much more powerful that thing is, uh, or custom, and that will be more customizable. It would be a bigger rig and, and all the other stuff. And then make your decision of, of whether, I mean, this should be powerful enough, but if you really... I get the feeling that the Mac Pro is going to be like like double the double kind of yeah. thing. So your end sort of verdict takeaway, if you were to sum your experience up in one sentence, what would that be? <sighs> That's tough. I think it's it, this is overkill 100% for most people. But if you work with big files day in, day out, then this is definitely something you should be looking at. Well, that's it for this week's show. Until next time, thanks for listening. Pip, pip. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.